All right, so it's Friday, so uh, welcome to another Membran Labs podcast. Um, I'm Tyler. Uh, this week, Art's on vacation, so I've got a guest, Jordan McKinney. Hello. So uh, so Jordan's uh, another student at UVic, and uh, he's also pretty involved in the Victoria blockchain community. So we thought it'd be interesting to bring him in and have a chat. So um, why don't you just introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm a computer science student at UVic, fourth year, almost done. Um I got into crypto. I actually, I'll try and compress this a bit, but I kind of got into crypto in like 2014 or so with uh, Dogecoin. <laughs> and I was just on the Reddit and I thought it was hilarious. So I thought it was super cool. It was around the time when they sponsored uh, a NASCAR driver. Oh, okay. Which yeah, was very, yeah. very the cool. Um, but I kind of left it alone and moved on from there. Went back to school and. I guess about a little over a year ago, um, some people who I know as being very smart and very in the know were talking about Ethereum a lot. Yeah. And so I decided I should look into it because it looked interesting. And anyway, I went down the rabbit hole. I've been down the rabbit hole for about a year now. And I, I've been buying a little bit and just trying to learn as much as I can and trying to meet more people involved in the crypto, you know, the crypto world. And yeah, so I started a Slack group and that has a few members from around Victoria. Um, and yeah, just trying to learn as much as possible. Yeah, your Slack group is actually, I think, one of the bigger ones now that's uh, that's crypto focused. So that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah, you're doing well with that. Yeah. Um, definitely uh, for when we're like networking, mm -hmm. we always recommend people to join that one. So yeah, well, if it can continue to grow, then that'd be great. Yeah, you've got an invite invite set up for it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the uh, What's the uh, URL on that? So there's vicblockchain.herokuapp.com. Okay. There's okay. another one as well, but I don't quite remember the URL. It's got a .sh in it, which is a little weird. All right. Well, we'll, we'll figure it out, and we'll uh, we'll put a link to it in the like description on this. Right. So if anybody wants to to join in, have a chat. Um, Seems like you're always available in there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much always there. <laughs> yeah, so you're mostly interested in uh, like the investing side of things. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, so I am doing computer science, and I've obviously have through computer science have a bit of a t technical background. But I have sort of decided that I I pref I'd rather be on the investing side. Yeah, I like to get a broad overview of the whole field and try and imagine where these things are going yep. and how things are going to fit together in the future and like where's value going to accrue and which things are going to be great for the consumer, but maybe no value will accrue there. And, you know, ra I, I like thinking about that kind of stuff rather than going deep on trying to build one application or something like that. It's just kind of my, my temperament or something. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, what I'm trying to move into when I finish school is something like crypto investing, um, something like, like if you take, um, multi-coin capital, they do their crypto hedge fund Yep. and they have analysts who look at projects and try and determine whether, you know, it would be a good investment to invest in that project. So something like that's kind of the dream. So, so the, the analyst side is what interests you though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's actually really interesting. Um, are you interested in any particular uh, crypto, like in particular? Like, are you an Ethereum guy or do you sort of stay balanced? 
No, I, I lean pretty heavily towards Ethereum. Yeah. <laughs> I try to remain skeptical and like, I try to think how could I be wrong as much as I can. Uh, I'm still going to have some bias, I think for sure. Yeah. But I do try to look at the other upcoming smart contract platforms and see, you know, how could they overtake Ethereum or, you know, what, how that's all going to play out. Yeah. So that, that wants to be like EOS right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's probably the biggest competitor. Yeah. I think EOS is really the only smart contract platform that I can think of that's really live right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a kind of an interesting week, eh? Yeah, in it has. World. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking before the podcast about this, uh, this attack on Ethereum or that some people think is being staged by EOS. Um, so the, the idea there is that, um, I think it's called a Sybil attack. Is that right? Um, I think a Sybil attack is where, so for example, if you were voting on something, if you wanted to reach consensus by voting and say you wanted to do that in like a distributed digital way, you couldn't just take and say, for example, one IP address per vote. Yeah. Like if you want to get one vote per person, you couldn't just say, okay, well, we'll just do each IP address represents a person. And I think a Sybil attack is where you act as if you're more than one person or one person could take a hundred IPs. And if you were using that kind of voting system, one person could take a bunch of IPs, vote with all of those, and it would look like a hundred people voted. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I, my understanding is that's what a civil attack is when you're, when you're kind of rep- acting as if you're more than one individual. Okay. And is that not kind of what we're looking at this week? Or do you think that what we've seen this week with uh, the high gas prices is different? Yeah, I'm not too sure if, I don't know if if that's what this is. So my understanding of what's been going on is that there's there's a smart contract, an ERC-20 contract that has been using, has been making a lot of transactions, has a lot of transactions going to it and from it. And my understanding is that's been like 40% of the Ethereum network capacity. So I think what's going on is this contract is sending tokens and then these other accounts are sending them back in this kind of long loop yeah and it's bouncing around between all these accounts but ultimately it's just one big loop yeah and the speculation i think is that it's all owned by one entity or by a few entities yeah so and i i guess what they're doing is just trying to flood the uh network with these transactions and either make it look like there's a lot of volume for their token, which might be, they might be doing that in order to try and get listed on an exchange. Yeah. That's one theory I heard. Or they're just trying to spam the network. Yeah. So one big component of how Ethereum works, right, is the gas price system and how it's supposed to be like a self-regulating market. But like, as this is, has shown that if you are willing to spend a bunch of money, you can really clog up the network for everyone else by by giving in really high gas fees, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting thing to see, like if if the Ethereum Foundation will even like consider this as a problem. Yeah, you know, like it's kind of hard to say if it's even an attack or if it's just like an aggressive use of the system as it exists. Yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of depends on your definition of an attack. Like, they're not doing anything that's outside of the rules of the system. They're just making transactions and sending stuff around and they're paying the fees. Yep. So, you know, it's whether you view it as an attack or not kind of depends on your definition. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be really expensive though. Eh? Like it's, mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, I have some, some numbers here. I have some stats. Uh, yeah, so Vitalik made a tweet that was kind of funny. He, he estimated that about $15 million had been spent, and he very helpfully converted that to about 75 Lambos, 5 million green teas. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, $15 million, uh, 50 ETH worth of gas per hour for over 24 hours. Holy. So a lot of money. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Like that anyone would be willing to do that for like possibly nefarious reasons. Like yeah, yeah. I think that's what makes people think it's EOS, right? Is just the the huge amount of money involved. Yeah. So if someone's going to spend that much money, just essentially doing nothing except producing volume for their token, yeah, then there has to be some motivation, and it is kind of conspicuously the timing is sort of like EOS just launched. And then there's been this spam on the network. Yeah. So there's people speculating that yeah, EOS is behind it, or some someone who has a lot of EOS tokens. Yeah, someone who wants to see Ethereum fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean that. I mean it's plausible, right? Because if you have fifty million dollars in EOS tokens, and you really want those to appreciate in value, then it might be worth it for you to spend a couple million to yeah, you know yeah. spam ethereum and there's some big players in eos now right yeah so i know peter Thiel and uh what's jihan Wu? i think okay yeah those guys are both big investors yeah, yeah. they just invested um, yeah so i mean that, there's a lot on the line for eos then right mm-hmm. especially with the the amount of money that they received in their was it an ico yeah it was basically their system's kind of weird right because they're trying to convert it to their own chain Right. So what they did is they had a, they had a year long, uncapped ICO. Yeah. And there was an ERC twenty token, and I don't know exactly how they how many tokens they offered per day or how exactly they sold them, but it was year long uncapped and they raised I think three three or four billion dollars. Wow. So that's another thing too is they had all this they had all this ether. Uh, okay. So one more thing is. As they sold all these tokens, and then their plan was to take, when the when the EOS network launched, they were going to take these tokens and kind of transfer them over to the to the network. Yeah. And as far as I know, that that went all right. But yeah, one of the things with that huge ICO is they have a huge amount of ether, or they did have a huge amount of ether, and so if you're someone who really wants EOS to succeed and you have like, if you're, you know, block one and you have access to this hundred thousand ether or whatever it is, then what you could do is you, you, you start a huge sell off and the price of ether goes down and it maybe looks ether look worse and yeah. makes EOS look better. Yeah. And I guess in a young market that could actually be enough to really drive a change. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that's actually really interesting that, that we could even get into seeing like a, like a smart contract platform war. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm going to be really fascinated to keep following this because, mm-hmm. you know, like on a personal level, like I developed for Ethereum. So on the one hand, I'm pretty like invested in it. Right. Right. You know, Cause I've, I've spent a bunch of time working with it, but at the same time, like if, it becomes the less trafficked option, then it's hard to like continue to develop for something that's being used less. Yeah, so it will be interesting. I mean, I Ethereum is so far ahead and they have so much, there's 
a lot of developer tools from what I understand yep. being developed and there's this whole ecosystem around it. So like I said, I am biased towards Ethereum, um, but I just find it, I can't really imagine, it's hard for me to imagine a smart contract platform really taking a lot of market share from them. Yeah. Um, but I guess we'll see with EOS. Well, they've got some big promises, right? Yeah. Like they, I don't know, are they running half second blocks already? Uh, I'm not sure. That was that was their claim though, right? Is that they'd be running a block every half second? Yeah, I think it was something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty fast. Yeah, and then um, they also had all sorts of ideas about uh, free transactions, right? Right. Right, so yeah. their, their whole thing was <laughs> that the transaction cost should be free for end users. Yeah. So that you could really have like a, a model for small businesses to like actually like economically deploy things. Um, yeah, like I made a video about talking about this stuff a little bit. Yeah. I won't go into it too much, but there's a lot of these promises or claims made by EOS that are like sort of true. Yeah. So yeah, EOS doesn't have transaction fees per se, but in order to use the network to do anything, as far as I know, you need to get some EOS tokens and you have to stake them. Okay. So you have to get the tokens and then you have to put them into this you have to lock them up in a contract and then you're afforded some percentage of the total EOS network resources. Yeah. And as far as I understand, you can't even make a transfer. Like I can't, you can't make a simple transaction unless you've staked some tokens and you got your share of resources. Okay. So you have to actually have tokens in order to do anything. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like a, a little bit of a different model than uh, some of the other platforms. But if their claims like about uh, how many transactions they'll be able to do come true, that's another thing where it's it's hard to think of arguing against like thousands of transactions per second and half second block times and like the user experience level, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because that, that's one of the big struggles that I, that I have with trying to understand how Ethereum can be viable is like right now when you do a transaction and you've got suddenly like a minute 20 block, like we saw, we saw, we were watching for 6 million tra or 6 million blocks today. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Woo. 6 million. But, yeah. um, we were just watching blocks and as we we're waiting for it, one of them was like a minute 20 mm. and it's like, you're going to tell someone that they have to wait a minute and 20 seconds for a website to respond in 2018. Yeah. Like that's, that's a hard sell. Right. Mm. So uh, I can see why people think that EOS is like a good alternative if it can offer that. Right. Yeah. So Apparently they're hitting like about 3000 transactions per second right now. Uh, wow. Which is really good. Um, so yeah, for something like, it all depends on what applications you're talking about. I think if you're talking about something like a decentralized Twitter, like there was a, ver a decentralized Twitter essentially made on Ethereum. Yeah. I think it was a L Leroy and they were every like, every retweet, every tweet was, had required a transaction and so yeah for something like that that's just not that's like a non-starter yeah exactly way too slow and way too expensive yeah and i think that most of what makes something like twitter interesting is that it's low investment for people to get into mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. making a twitter post is like quick and easy right mm -hmm. and if you're suddenly paying you know somewhere from like 10 to 25 to 50 cents per per every interaction that's a that's a pretty big obstacle to the type of crowd that Twitter or the type of interaction that Twitter is trying to create, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so... Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like, like that to me is one of the biggest obstacles that's facing smart smart contract platforms. Yeah, I think it depends on the application though. Like there are there are applications where you're making fewer transactions and a couple cents or a dollar or even a dollar is not a big deal. Yep. So like we might talk about this a bit later, but there's this game that's being developed where the the it's a trading card game. Yeah. And the cards are ERC seven twenty one tokens, but the all the game mechanics are it's not take it, nothing nothing happens on chain essentially except when you buy a card or when you sell a card. Yeah, I was looking at that too. That seems really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. That's called Gods and Chain, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of a goofy name, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff like that, I think, you know, it it just depends on the application. Like users do not will not tolerate paying anything. For something like Facebook, something like Twitter. Yeah, because they're used to not paying for it. Yeah, yeah. And there's just that bar. It's not even the amount of money. It's the barrier of like, oh, I'll try this site out. And then it says, oh, please send whatever, 10 cents worth of Ether. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's just, yeah, it's a barrier. Absolutely. It gets in the way. And that's like, that to me looks like the biggest thing stopping the smart contracts and the distributed or decentralized ecosystem from really becoming mainstream Mm -hmm. right now. Well, I think it is it is scaling for sure. That's, yeah, it's, that's it's the getting thing. there. And yeah. with with the technologies coming out with Ethereum in the next, I mean, we always say in the near future and it yeah. never really seems to be, but, you know, with the, the side chains and mm-hmm. um, obviously Casper, sharding and Plasma are the, the big three that people always talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we could end up in a place where that becomes viable. But um, like right now, it's it's hard to even imagine interacting with the blockchain on a daily basis yeah yeah again it i think it depends on the the use case like if i were transacting in ether and sending money back and forth between say like friends or something i don't think i'd really mind paying 10 cents yeah you know or or 50 cents or something but yeah when it comes to the bigger applications we need some kind of fee-free system yeah i think um, and yeah, EOS kind of does that, but ultimately the, the cost just has to go somewhere, right? So you have to pay, people are man- maintaining the network and you have to pay them. So with EOS, there's no transaction fee paid per transaction, but those, those miners still have to be paid. Yeah. So they're just paid through issuance, right? So this is similar to Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. Bitcoin and Ethereum, they both have fees per transaction and issuance. Yeah. So the block reward pays the miners and they also the miners are also paid by the fees. And EOS just removes the fee part and they have only the, the issuance part. And that's fine. Um, essentially what you're doing is you're just taxing. It's like a flat tax to, to all token holders because by inflating the currency you're just devaluing, assuming the price stays the same, you're just devaluing everybody's tokens a little bit. Yeah. So I like to think of it with EOS, not so much that it's fee free, but more that it's the fee is essentially, the, the burden of the fee is essentially borne by all token holders Yeah. as like a percentage of what they own. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a flat tax across all token holders as opposed to a yeah. tax on the transaction. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Mm. I, I can actually see that being like a good model, though, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, for you sure. You know, like if if you can do that in a way that doesn't make the currency so overinflated that it's useless, mm-hmm. then that might actually be the way to take that that cost and take it away from those individual transactional kind of things. So. I don't yeah. know. I, like, I, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. Mm. Um, and just on that point too, that's something Kyle Samani's talked about a lot. Is from he's from Multicoin Capital. Okay. And he he he's he's pretty bullish on EOS, and he thinks the idea of like having the fee sort of hidden like that as a essentially a flat tax, he thinks it's just a better user experience. And even if even if the users are still sort of paying a fee because they're their tokens are being devalued a bit. If they can't see that fee and they don't feel it, then that might be, you know, that might be more compelling. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's how, that's how the modern internet works right now. Right. Yeah. Basically like we're all, we're all kind of paying with our freedom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit of your personal information every time you turn on the computer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's hidden, we don't seem to mind it. Yeah. Kind of a weird psychological thing. eh? Mm hmm. I don't know. I think that if I had to pay uh, $10 a month for Facebook with uh, with no fees, I probably would just, or with no ads, I'd probably just stop using it. Yeah, I think most people would. Yeah. I don't know. Just something about uh, paying for something that you currently get for free mm-hmm. is kind of a weird, weird psychological thing. Yeah. Can we, can we go back to that, that game? Gods yeah, and Chain? for sure. For sure. I think that's super interesting. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool too. Yeah. Just um, for some context, if, if anybody who's listening is familiar with games like like Hearthstone, um, that's by Blizzard, right? I think so. Yeah, it's it's absolutely huge now. And the, the idea is that you have a, a deck of cards that you, you put together, and then you go and have a card battle with other players. And um, for some reason, the idea of collecting cards has just completely taken off. I, I don't know personally like collecting things in games isn't really something for me like I don't really yeah. get it but the the markets are huge like you've got you've got Hearthstone obviously and then other things like um, CSGO skin trading mm-hmm. has been going on for years mm-hmm. and years and it's been a, an incredibly lucrative market right mm-hmm. you know you see people selling skins for guns in a video game for thousands of dollars and like I don't yeah. I, I personally can't understand it like yeah. it just it seems crazy to me but well, even in in-game purchases themselves have become, I think, almost the dominant revenue stream for games. Yeah. Like I think back to, what was it called Candy Crush? Yeah. And uh, so instead of selling Candy Crush for like four ninety nine or something, which they could have done, and I think a lot of games ha- use that model. Yeah. I think Candy Crush was free to play, but you, they offered. They would sell you like extra lives and stuff. So they'd offer the game free to play. You'd play it for a while and then you'd get stuck and you're out of lives. And then it presents you with the option to buy some extra lives. Yeah. So it hits you right when you're like, you're already in the game and you want to keep playing. And then it's like, oh, just pay $2 and you can keep playing. Instead of if you have that price barrier up front before someone's even played the game, then obviously they're not. They're not invested yet. They're not playing. They're not having fun yet. So it, to me, it seems like a really smart idea. Yeah. 
Yeah, those games have come under a lot of heat for being kind of uh, manipulative, though, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, the costs are kind of less obvious to someone who's playing the game. And, like, yeah. you know, 2 or $3 a day feels like a lot less than, like, $20 up front. Yeah, and they really, they kind of, they're, like, borderline gambling almost. Yeah. Like, you're not making money, but they they give you these sort of dopamine hits of, you know, you win the game or you, you go up a level and then whatever it is, you, you, you're down on lives. And so you're kind of like in a, a depressed state. Yeah. That's, then, that's the argument with like loot crates and things like that too. Right. I don't know what, what that is. Like, uh, like in games where you pay to unlock like a crate that has some item in it. Right. And you don't know what it's going to be until you unlock it. Right. You, yeah. That you is got like gambling. You got to pay to <laughs> unlock it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty common model too. Yeah. I don't know. The whole thing kind of freaks me out to be honest, but. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other thing too, with the that in-game purchase model is if you sell the app up front for like $2.99, then the most, the most you ever get from a given user is $2.99. But if you have in-game purchases, it's uncapped. So I know, <laughs> I know someone who used to play it a lot and she, she had spent like 50 or $60 on Candy Crush. Yeah. And she never would have spent 50 or $60 to buy the game. Yeah. So from the game developer's perspective, it's like brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I can actually see it from, from the player's perspective too. Like if you have the self-control to only spend what you want on the game, then that could actually be a really good deal for you. Like a lot of those games mm-hmm. are playable for free, mm-hmm. you know? So if you just pick up one of those games and say, oh, I'm just going to play it for free. And when it's, you know, when it starts to ask me for money, that's it. Like that might actually be a good deal for you. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It just kind of seems like the the way that they're kind of psychologically, like, built. Yeah, it's a little so, it's a little manipulative. Yeah, but anyways, the the topic of like people collecting stuff in games is is really interesting to me. Yeah. Right. Because even though you don't have like physical ownership of anything, and right now, like, if you own things on like the Steam marketplace, um, like that's that's what people buy things for, like Counter Strike, mm-hmm. um, or you know, collectibles like on uh, on Fortnite Battle Royale is really popular right now. Yeah, or it was, uh, and they have um, they have like in-game like purchases for skins and things like that. Like you don't really even own those things. No, you definitely don't. Right, like you're paying for the privilege of using them, I guess. But at any point, the game developer can just revoke them. Yeah. Right. With with absolutely no consequence to themselves, except for maybe a bunch of angry customers who stop playing. Mm-hmm. Whereas at least on on the blockchain, you know, you have some more control over it if the smart contract is written correctly. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. One little stat about the in-game uh, items: apparently, it's fifty billion dollars worth of in-game items have been traded in. I think in just twenty eighteen. And that's projected to like triple by 2022. So that, that seems completely nuts to me. Yeah. Um, 50 billion. So yeah, if that we, you'd think that market would get bigger if like right now, if I'm going to spend money on in-game items, I I'm aware that I don't really own these, or at least I should be aware. Yeah. Of that. But if we, we see games go to a tokenized model, then it's like, Oh, I really own this. This is like a real asset and they can, since they can be traded, uh, like assets, 
they can be priced like assets and then they are assets. Yeah. So if you play some game and you win some like rare item, like right now, if you do that, you, you can sell them, but you're restricted by the develop the game developer. Yep. And they usually take a cut. And if the game goes offline or something, it's gone. But if, if that's kind of taken away and it's like a free market of items, then you can look at these items as actual investments. Yeah. Actual, actual assets. Well, a lot of people think that CryptoKitties is a viable way to put your money into. So, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that's the, the first real model of, um, like a working game that mm -hmm. has these tokenized assets that's been somewhat successful, right? Mm -hmm. One thing about CryptoKitties though, that is kind of in their fine print that gets glossed over is so each CryptoKitty is a ERC721 token. Yep. You own the token. You can trade the token. You can do whatever you want with the token. But all the token is, is some fields with some data in it. Yeah. So it's essentially a big string of data. And the Axiom Zen, the developers of CryptoKitties, they have the rights to the artwork associated with that kitty. So you don't really own the kitty. You own the token. You own like the bit, the string of data. But you, if they shut down, another company cannot come along tomorrow and, you know, spin up a new site and show your kitty as it you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not as decentralized as they make it seem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking with games, whether the, you know, the in-game items would follow that kind of model. Or maybe we would see some kind of like open standards around not just the game assets, but the game artwork as well. Yeah. So that way you could actually, like if you get a sword, you could actually keep the sword and the artwork. So you, you know, if you don't have the artwork, it's just a, it's a big bitch string. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this, how this evolves. I do think gaming is going to be a big application. Yeah, me too. For, I, I really yeah. think that games are probably going to be one of the, the earliest sort of distributed apps that, that really kind of push the boundaries of what's possible. Mm -hmm. I, I think in a lot of ways, they kind of have the highest demands for like feedback and speed and things like that, that are ultimately like our whole internet works on those concepts now, mm -hmm. right? Like people don't even realize how fast things like Facebook are for the amount of data that they serve. Mm -hmm. Or like if you go to like a Bloomberg like website, and like, look at the amount of um, requests that it makes. It's like three, five hundred. It's crazy, and people don't even realize that so much is going on. So when when you take it back to like smart contracts, where we're talking about individual transactions that are taking seconds, right? Like that, there, there's a lot of room for the system to grow. And I think that in terms of demand, the games place the highest stresses on this sort of system. So, so do you mean by? Like uh, transactions per second demand? Uh, transactions per second demand and like latency and even just like the amount of data that they serve, mm -hmm. right? Like if we were able to come up with a system that could actually allow games to function completely decentralized, that would be that would be a really incredible system because it would have to be able to handle serving assets. Um, yeah. It would have to be able to handle communication in like a peer-to-peer -peer way, um, which obviously we can already do, but over a decentralized network, maybe it's slower. Um and you'd have to lower transaction costs because there are a lot of interactions that occur in a game, right? 
Yeah. So I, I think those are all obstacles that are kind of universal to the distributed application space, like as problems, but they come up like earliest and most importantly in games. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like for that reason, I can see it as being a really uh, viable market for innovation to happen. Yeah. Hopefully, like, I think there's a lot of stuff that won't be on chain. Yeah. You know, so hopefully Plasma can solve some of these issues. Yeah. Because, like, if if you have, if you're, I don't know if you'd ever want, like, your entire game mechanics on chain. Yeah. Unless Ethereum was scaled, like, to such a degree that it just didn't matter. And it was so fast and so cheap, you could run basically anything on it. Yeah. We're a long way from that, though. But... But yeah. may, like maybe that being the like eventual magical end goal mm-hmm. where you'd say this is a perfect implementation now. Right. Right. But yeah, I, th- I think that Plasma probably gets us around a lot of the initial challenges with, with taking a lot of the things that could occur in a game and putting them off chain. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about this card game, right? Like maybe the battles could occur in a Plasma side chain, right? Right. Or off chain. And so like when you're playing your cards or whatever, that probably happens like a few dozen times in a game or maybe even hundreds mm-hmm. that could all happen. And then you could just return with the win. Right. And then you'd only have one transaction. Yes. I think plasma, like the, the value proposition of plasma is that you can, you can essentially do anything you want off chain and you can run it as fast as you want. You can use delegated proof of stake, or I think you can even use just like a, a single server yeah. and just follow the the rules of your blockchain. And then none of that stuff ever needs to be computed by the, or none of the Ethereum nodes ever need to worry about your chain yeah. until there's some dispute about whether someone's trying to withdraw too many funds or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I think it'll, it'll be exciting to see when Plasma starts rolling out. I don't know when it's expected to, to launch or when, the first chains are going to start. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I'm, I'm pretty interested to see how the developer environment is mm-hmm. for working in these because that's, that's another thing that's a big obstacle. Um, and finally, I feel like um, Ethereum is getting to a place where most people could now reasonably expect to be able to develop a distributed application without too much challenge, mm. right? Like um, we just started using a tool called uh, Drizzle, that's built by the the truffle um i don't even know what to call it it's a group of tools basically uh, a lot of people have used um test rpc and ganache which are both under the same umbrella of tools uh for like creating test blockchains um but with with drizzle it seems like we're able to really easily interact with with smart contracts which is something that we couldn't do before um, like for example, it was it was challenging in the past to um, keep track of the state of a smart contract, um, and you know you had to manually subscribe to events and then compute the changes that occurred based on the events. Uh, whereas now, I can delegate a lot of that thought processing to Drizzle and just kind of build my application. Um, so, like tools like that for things like plasma i think will be really important Mm -hmm. because like ultimately if no one develops things in your platform it dies yeah so could you talk a bit about the ethereum development process 
I've done a little bit of development, just like a couple tutorials, but what exactly is the kind of high level overview of the workflow? So if I wanted to make, say I wanted to make a simple, like my own ERC20 token. Yep. What would that involve? Uh, well, the the first thing I think is to take a look at a few of the different uh, like packages that are available. Um, so like we're just talking about Truffle and uh, what, what that does for you is it, it gives you like a Solidity compiler and uh, a few other like uh, a Web3 package. Web3 is a JavaScript library for interacting with smart contracts and uh, a few other things. And you can download it all from like the, the Truffle website. Um, and it, it really gets you out the door pretty quick. Um, so if you really just wanted to deploy like an ERC20 contract, I think that the easiest thing to do would be to download one of those packages and then use just an ERC20 template. So for example, Open Zeppelin. I don't know if you've, mm. you've heard of Open Zeppelin, but yeah. they have the, the most uh, templates right now, I think, of anyone. And basically, um, they just have all of the functions and things like that that you need to make a contract uh, basically set up for you. And all you have to do is name the thing. And um, you don't even really have to learn much about the build chain to deploy a token anymore. Hmm. Like if you just run a couple of commands in the Truffle package, it does it for you. So like in, in that sense, it's it's actually shockingly easy to yeah. to deploy tokens now. So when you're, when you're developing, do you deploy to a testnet? Yeah, so uh, we, we typically start development like on a day-to-day -day basis on uh, like a Ganache test RPC. Right. So that's, so a, that's local. That's a local blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, not, not, not a real blockchain. It's a, like a blockchain emulator. Yep. And what, what that does for me is it lets me just restart and delete my old contracts and, you know, continually go over and, and re-migrate new contracts. Um, and then once we have something that sort of works, we'll typically deploy that to like a Robston test network. Um, so that's like the live Ethereum test network, right? Yeah. So there's a few, and there's a few that have been deprecated, um, but right. we use Robston, and I think Robston's a, a proof of stake. They use some other algorithm for it. Right. Um, but basically, interacting with Robston is exactly the same as interacting with the like mainnet. Um, right. Like functionally, it's the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to have a node. You have to you know talk through the node to the system. Um, for the most part, people tend to use MetaMask as their node provider. And MetaMask actually connects to uh, a group called Infura, who runs a bunch of nodes. So you mean instead of, instead of having a local copy of the Ethereum, the real Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, so it, it obviously wouldn't be practical for most people to copy the whole Ethereum blockchain every time they went to a site. Right, right, right. Um, so what MetaMask does is it runs like a light client. And it connects to a node. Okay. Right. Yeah, so you have yeah, to have a full node somewhere to connect to. Yeah. And for the most part, most people will end up connecting to an Infura node. Right. Um, but depending on the application, that might not be um, that might not be reasonable. Um, and the reason for that is that Infura doesn't support uh, always returning data. And the, I don't really remember all the stipulations of it, but there are certain circumstances where in complex smart contracts you need to run your own node. Um, but for the most part, once you're on Robston, like if you can do that, you've you've got all the steps to deploying on the mainnet. Mm. And uh, and so every time you deploy, you because 
con- smart contracts on Ethereum are immutable, right? Yeah. So every every time you deploy, you deploy a new to a new location. Yeah, it deploys to a new address. So the old one's still there, but um, the like even even that you don't really have to worry about. Like the tools provide when you deploy a new contract, uh, Truffle will automatically generate the correct address and documentation for it in your code. Hmm. So your code automatically connects to the correct location um, if you use a package that's initially developed. Like the um, the Solidity and Ethereum ecosystem right now, I think is the best it's ever been for developing for Ethereum. Like it's really, I think that we deployed a token about a month ago um, on a test net just to see how long it would take to really do. And it it was like, dozens of lines of code like not even hundreds mm-hmm. it, it was it was completely pleasant to do so yeah yeah i mean i, I honestly uh I, I would recommend for people who are thinking about it to just give it a shot because it really isn't a big investment of time anymore so you use truffle is there any other framework type stuff you use yeah so there, there's a bunch of different uh truffle boxes that come with a bunch of options so truffle um provides a lot of the compiling tools so typically everyone you'll see writing JavaScript applications will be using Truffle. And then there's a few front-end frameworks. So people use or front-end libraries for interacting with contracts. So the biggest one is Web3, and Web3 is what MetaMask supports. Um, and then there's also a couple others. Um, I think ETHJS is the second biggest. Um, and those, those will all typically be something that you know every application will need no one's really writing contract code on their own um like for interacting with contracts like it would just be unnecessarily cumbersome and then uh, in a lot of cases like if you're writing a react app um, there's tools like drizzle which is one of truffles kind of products that gives you a lot of tools for keeping track of state mm-hmm. um, so it, it really just depends on like what kind of application you're building um, if you were just building a token, I would say like using something like Drizzle is probably totally unnecessary. Like you could get away with just Web3 for that. Um, you build something a little more complicated, Drizzle makes it a lot easier. So what does it cost you when you deploy? Uh, so deploying on Robston uh, is obviously doesn't cost anything because mm. you just use a faucet. Um, faucet is just like a, a contract that gives out free Ethereum. Um, and then it really depends on the size of the contract. So pricing on Ethereum for contracts is based upon the size of the compiled bytecode. Um, and I, there's actually, there's a calculation for it. I don't have it offhand, but um, it scales directly with the amount of code that you're deploying. And it, right. it ranges from, like, depending on the day. Like, earlier this week, it would have been, like, a couple hundred dollars to deploy a basic token. Um, but for the most part, it's relatively inexpensive to deploy simple contracts, hmm. um, like 5 to $10, something like that. Um, the more complex ones, just obviously the more complex you make it, the more expensive it gets. Right. I guess in relation to developer hours, that's a pretty insignificant cost. Uh, yeah, for the most part. But like it does kind of expose, um, like when gas prices are, are 50 to 100 it gets really expensive really quick mm-hmm. um, when like I'll, I'll take a look at ETH gas station here and we'll see what see what the price of gas is right now but yesterday it was it was two 
Yeah, now now it looks like the standard price for Gwei is three, which is pretty normal. Yeah, three to five is mostly what I've seen. Um, and I, I found that deploying a basic contract at three to five Gwei is usually in less than ten bucks. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty reasonable, I think. Did you want to talk about Augur? Oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Prediction markets. Yeah, yeah. So I guess they launched like a week ago or. Maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, just recently they, they launched yeah. their... Is it is it like a beta version or is it an actual... No, I think it's real. I think it's yeah. the full release. Yeah, and there's some some of the markets have closed. So some of the actual... So if anyone isn't aware, a uh, prediction market like Augur allows you to bet on basically any event that's coming up in the future. So if you wanted to bet on a presidential outcome or like a an election or something like that, you can create a market on Augur and people can place bets on candidate A or candidate B. And then when the event happens, the market closes. And if, let's say, let's say 90% of the people were betting on candidate A, then however much money was bet by the people who took the other outcome, that would get dis distributed amongst the people who bet on the correct outcome um, according to how much they bet. So it just gets distributed. Whatever the losing side is, that money gets distributed to the winning side. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, the idea that you could bet on anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there was a conversation actually in uh, in the Vic blockchain Slack where you guys were talking about using it as like an insurance too. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah you can essentially do kind of anything with it. Like, oh, what was that example where... It was drought, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea being that if uh, if you're if you're a farmer or something like that, and you believe that a drought may come, you may decide to to bet some amount of money that there will be a drought. And if there's enough enough people that are betting that there won't be a drought, it kind of functions like an insurance policy, right? Yeah, because if if you're the farmer, you hope there's no drought. So if you bet, if you make a bet that there will be a drought, if the drought happens you win the bet, you win some money. If the drought doesn't happen, you're happy because you're a farmer and that's what you wanted. Yeah. So it functions like insurance in that case. Yeah, I mean, it's the same basic um, idea as as insurance, like that you're you're taking one side of a prediction and saying, you know, if this happens, that like the the risk that I'm taking on by investing this money is, is low, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I don't know, it, it is kind of interesting. Like I could see how people might... Um, might choose to use something like Augur for that. Yeah, but I mean that's just one application. Yeah, there's like, there's obviously many. You can bet on you can bet on sports, you can bet on politics, um, you can bet on the price. Like the 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 biggest markets right now are essentially just predictions about the price of ether and other assets. Yeah. So the biggest one is right now is will will the price of ether exceed five hundred dollars at the end of twenty eighteen? And there's, last I checked, like six hundred thousand uh, dollars being bet on that, and like sixty four percent of people are saying yes. Wow. So if you bet against that, then you would you would stand to receive the redistribution of all those people's wealth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I'm on Augur's Twitter right now, and it says that they've got one point uh, one million U.S. dollars in open interest. So mm -hmm. that's like 
obviously people seem to be um, seem to be interested with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I also see some interesting questions about you know if you get into some more specific markets, like say say we're betting on how many views this podcast might get. There might not be enough people involved to kind of make it a balanced outcome. So mm-hmm. how does Augur then determine, you know, what actually happened? Like, what if I were able to just find six people who all said that we got a million views in our podcast? That might be enough to get more than 50% of, like, whatever the outcome calculation is. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if I can recall exactly how the resolution system works. Basically, it's, it's like the Oracle problem. It's, yeah. okay, some, how do, something happened in the real world and it's going to have some impact on something on-chain. So I need some connection from the real world to the crypto world. So in the case of Augur, you know, some election happens or something, you need to get that information onto Ethereum, onto Augur. And the way that's done right now, I know... I think what they do is they select, I don't know if this is how they initially resolve an outcome or if this is when an outcome is disputed, but they'll randomly select the rep holders. Uh, rep is the token for Augur. They'll randomly select some of those people and then they have to report on the outcome of the event. And if that if that reporting is challenged, then there's another round. like. When a when a outcome is reported, people can challenge that outcome. Yeah, and I believe when you challenge the, an outcome, you it costs you some money to do so. But if you if you turn out to be correct, you it pays off. So there's like this these levels of challenge. So there's the initial reporting that one gets challenged, then it goes to I think a larger set of uh, token holders, and they report again. And it can continually be challenged until it reaches the highest level, which is where all of the token holders for the whole system vote on an outcome. So it's, it's stake-based, right? Like based on how many tokens you have? On how many you're willing to stake on the outcome. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Here, I just got their white paper open. Um, so... Yeah, they, they have some different phases. I think there's there's seven phases here um, of any given uh, market. And and one of them is the rounds of dispute. Right. And they've got a whole flow chart for it. But I, I think that's basically correct is that the idea is that, you know, you, you stand to be financially rewarded by answering correctly. Yeah. And answering incorrectly, there's a financial penalty. Right. Yeah. And incorrectly and correctly being like the majority consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I guess my concern is that if you have a small group of people, it might not even be expensive to just like. Yeah. And, and some things are really hard to report on, right? Like if, you know, it's like if my house, if you're betting on something that's really localized, like, I don't know if you could bet on this, but whether your house burned down, maybe you could come up with some kind of insurance scheme on Augur. Yeah. Or whether your house burned down. But that's really hard for a randomly selected group of rep holders to to find out whether that happened or not. Yeah. I mean, they could probably go to a newspaper, a local newspaper, and maybe find out. But it does get difficult. Like, the, the Oracle problem is, I think, a really tough problem. And I don't know if there's any better way to do it than by sort of a consensus 
kind of thing like that. Yeah. Where you just get people to vote. And yeah, but it'll be interesting to see how Augur does. I really hope that it becomes a, a you know, a larger platform and uh, more markets get created and more money gets in there. Because I think the the most interesting thing to me about prediction markets is the prediction part. Yeah. Like the idea that, so if you're going to try and figure out some, you're going to try and predict something about the future. There's a bunch of ways you could do that. One way is you could pull experts. Yep. Um, but if you're pulling, the problem with that is there's no cost for them to be wrong or there's very little cost. Yeah. Uh, essentially people can just, if you pull a bunch of people about whether something's going to happen, they can, they have lots of reasons for saying certain things. They could, they could say what they want to happen. They can, they can say what, if, you know, if other people are, can hear what they're saying or are aware of what they're voting or saying, then there's this whole signaling theory stuff that Robin Hanson talks about where, you know, people might say a certain outcome's going to happen because they think they should say that, or yeah. there's some signaling value in doing that. Um, and I think Robin Hanson actually was the one who came up with the prediction market idea. And the power of it is if you have people actually put their money down and people are actually going to risk money on a prediction, they suddenly become very honest. Yeah. And it also has the effect of weeding out people who don't know what they're talking about. So if you have, if prediction markets are running for a while and, you know, let's say we reach some sort of steady state where they're operating smoothly then what should have happened by then is the people who don't know what they're talking about would have lost their money Yeah, and they'll stop. They'll just stop betting. So it's like it selects for people who know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if you answer wrongly enough times, you'll just run out of money. Yeah. So then we, ideally we can then look to our prediction markets and get the most accurate forecast of what's going to happen for a particular event that we can. So it would be, I think I don't know if this is how if this has been shown empirically, but the idea is that with prediction markets, we'll be able to get more accurate forecasting than any other method, including asking experts or polling people or anything else. It almost becomes like a, a weighted consensus on the outcome of an event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's weighted consensus on the outcome of an event with stakes. So people lose money if they're wrong. So that makes them really honest and. It, self, it sort of self-selects the, the true experts. Okay. Yeah. Did you, did you see Eric just there? No. He you? made some rude gestures through the window. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to say exactly what that was, but right. <laughs> I missed yeah. it, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I don't think you're missing out on much. Um, yeah, no, I think that is really interesting. Right. And it, it kind of has like repercussions outside of just economics. Right. Cause what if you had a really accurate way of predicting like a presidential outcome or something like that? Mm -hmm. Like people would value that there, there's a lot of market research that already goes into that. So, um, yeah, good predictions about the future. are Very valuable. Yeah. I don't know. I, I read something about, uh, this is sort of related someone trying to use machine learning to predict the outcome of the world cup. How did it how did it work? Well, I mean, basically what they found was the best thing to do was to just see what people were saying. Like there's there was no statistical sort right. of analysis they could find. It was essentially what you're talking about is yeah. is trying to find some kind of way to get a consensus of experts mm -hmm. and taking 
whatever their predictions are and trying to compile them into something that makes sense. So ultimately, uh, what I read basically amounted to an average of experts, like expert articles on, right. you know, what, what might, what might occur. And then kind of saying, Oh, well, this is the most commonly selected choice. So that's probably most likely to happen. Yeah. The uh, whole idea is based on the wisdom of the crowd idea. And yeah. It's a pretty interesting idea. The, one of the downsides with relying on experts like outside outside of prediction markets, if we just poll experts, there's also the definition of expert, right? Yeah. So there are people who are not sort of labeled as experts who do have expert opinion on whatever the topic might might be. I'm sure there's some uh, soccer fans who know a lot about soccer but are not professionally involved in the sport. Yeah. Right. So they wouldn't be considered an expert, but really they are. And yeah, and it was something like like a prediction market where if they could consistently make accurate predictions, then they would eventually have the same standing as any expert mm-hmm. in theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as a, a way of kind of selecting for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty exciting time to kind of be a, a fly on the wall, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're definitely still early, though. I tried to, uh, I tried to run Augur on my computer. And this isn't the fault of Augur or anything, but I had to sync the whole Ethereum blockchain and I, I waited like an hour. I checked on it after like an hour and it was 0.17% done. So <laughs> I was just like, all right, I'm not going to bother. So you need this. the whole blockchain for Augur? I guess, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, didn't, I didn't know that. It didn't give me an option to, you'd think there'd be a, you'd think I could just, I guess you don't want to trust anything though. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. The only way for me to be sure that what I'm seeing is correct is if I check it all myself. So I can't trust some, some node being, you know, run on some server somewhere. Yeah. That that's part of it, right? That's part of, um, like that's one of the downsides of a decentralized system is that if you don't trust anyone, like you got to do some work yourself. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's, there's no really easy way to get around that apart from, you know, coming up with like a light node setup or something like that where you can have partial trust. But ultimately, if you want to be 100% confident, the, there's a lot of onus on you to do that work. And obviously that's not the same as like, you know, mentally checking through each calculation. It's just computer time, like, like mm-hmm. cycles for you. But um, th- there is a cost associated with that, right? Like your, your computer, while it's sinking, is burning energy. So yeah, you know the the whole blockchain based system is not perfect by any means. Like no. even the concept of it is. I think what we're going to end up seeing too is, like, I think it'll make sense to have lots of nodes being run independently. Yeah. You know, by just saying, like Vitalik talks about, what he'd like to see is, just lots of laptops running Ethereum, like yeah. to keep it light enough that it can be run. A full node can be run on a laptop, but I think. For a lot of users, what we're going to see is third parties that sit between the these blockchains and us. Yep. You know, like we were talking about one time about account recovery and losing funds. And, you know, if you're interacting just directly with the Ethereum blockchain and you're transferring your funds around, it's really easy for you to lose the money yep. or f- forget your private keys or whatever. I, I don't think most consumers are going to interact with these things like that. I think we'll have a layer that sits between us and the blockchain and we'll trust that layer a little bit. You know, like people trust banks now and 
maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but they do. Are are you thinking sort of like a like an identity provider almost? Like like a business that maybe their whole their whole business would be to just maintain your identity and like allow you to recover that information? Like is that kind of the idea that you're thinking or would you think more along the lines of having like every company that's involved in the space have their own system? I'm not sure. I, I was thinking more like a something like a bank. Yeah. So like if if people if in the future we're all using cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, then I, I could imagine there being like essentially a bank that we can go into and like talk to somebody and they just handle the custody of our funds. Yeah. And so I have a bank account there and it has Ether in it or whatever. And I can use their interface to send and receive. Yeah. Maybe it's like Coinbase, right? Like you can send and receive through Coinbase. But they also offer some extra guarantees around, you know, um, whether like maybe they hold my private keys so I don't have to worry about losing them. Yeah, or, and then you can say Pro- prove you are who you are and then we'll give you a new password kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that seems reasonable to me too. Um, I always think kind of like, you know, what if my grandma had to deal with this? Like, you mm-hmm. know, I, I could see it, like she forgets passwords sometimes, right? Yeah. And it's like, if there was no way to recover passwords, it's like, how would that work? How would that that system even function? And like, you're talking about banks, right? Mm-hmm. With a bank, you can, you can always go into the bank, talk to someone and your money is still there. Whereas if you lose a private key, like you legitimately lose that money. Yeah. So. Yeah. Unless they hard fork to get it back. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's so likely, right? It's not likely. Not likely. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a super exciting time to be involved, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but I think, yeah, for, for mass adoption, we're going to have to see a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. The average person doesn't want to do any of that. They don't want to do any tech stuff. They don't want to get a ledger. They don't want to have to worry about any of that. They yeah. want to be able to walk into a place, get all set up in a couple hours, and then just use a credit card or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably true. I, I actually, I imagine that the internet was a lot like this when they first, you know, were trying to figure out how to get like peer-to-peer computer networking to people. You know, I'm sure that they dealt with a lot of these obstacles as well. Mm-hmm. Not the same obstacles, obviously, but a lot in the same way. Like, how do we how do we make this really cool technology that we see a lot of value in and a lot of future kind of power in, how do we convince people that they actually need to use it, Right. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you overcome the obstacles like that? I think that's an industry into itself. Yeah, so that kind of raises the question too of like, how do you think, assuming that this the cryptocurrencies go mainstream, how do you think that's going to happen? Like, what is it going to look like? Where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, because I don't see. Like, I think in Canada and the United States and a lot of places, the existing systems for payment are actually pretty good. Yeah. So like credit cards are really convenient and yeah. cash is really convenient. Have you tried uh, like Google Pay or Apple Pay? No. And you know what? Part part of the reason I haven't tried it is because my credit card's fine. Yeah. Right. It's fast. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have a coworker, um, Art, who uses the the pay on his phone kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it looks pretty, pretty straightforward. I right? just taps his phone. So, I mean... Right, when, but when not, you, not all merchants accept it, though. Right? Not all merchants accept it, it's true. So then you got to be like, oh, do you take... Or I could just use my credit card, and I know everyone's going to accept it. Yeah. I, sometimes I have to 
actually sign my receipt at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Feels weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, holy man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've gotten pretty efficient, right? Like the tap, the tap system's pretty good. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think the, I don't think the adoption is going to come from, like, I don't think it's going to happen in, in the United States or in Canada through payments. I just don't see the pain point in the current payment system. Yeah, even a lot of people talk about like how hard it is to transfer money from one person to another. But in Canada, we have Interact e-transfer. So like if you have your money in a bank account in Canada, it's... Yeah, it's okay. Like it's really, <laughs> it's, it's not any harder than like getting an Ethereum account and then adding money to that. Oh, and then, no. Like, like that's, that's, that's still much more challenging yeah. than using an e-transfer, yeah. right? So yeah. um, like on, on that sort of level, I, I find it kind of hard to hard to find the actual friction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, I don't know, I've been thinking about this and I think the there is there is some major friction outside of Canada. Yeah. Outside of the, you know, the States and Canada and... Yeah, and uh, especially, I see it for international transfers, mm-hmm. right? If you mm-hmm. ever have to transfer money to someone, especially not even just in the States, but like overseas. Yeah. Like that's why, that's why companies like PayPal have become so successful, right? Yeah. Yeah, so for those long distance transfers, there is a huge, there's a lot of friction. It's, they're really slow. They take a big fee um, and you have to use something like Western Union or whatever. But I don't. I think that's a bit too niche to really drive mass adoption. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, I see places like Venezuela, and I think that's potentially a good place for this to start. Like with unstable currencies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're living somewhere where the, especially high inflation, if you're living somewhere where your, your money is being, devalued every day yeah. to like a really high degree, then you don't want to hold that money. Yeah. But what a lot of people are doing in those countries is they just use U.S. dollar if they can because it's stable. But I don't know, maybe that's where maybe the adoption would start in places where the monetary system is weakest and most corrupt. And then as the technology gets better, eventually we start using it day to day. But I'm not too sure. I actually think for the, you know, for the West, I think we need... I think the mass adoption will come when we have some kind of killer app, something that's different beyond just payments. Like your, your Facebook. Yeah, something like that. Like, I don't know. Like the first really big application mm-hmm. that, that drags a lot of people into the market. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but I think it's got to be something, it's got to be something totally unique that you couldn't do without cryptocurrency. Like yeah. I don't think people care about decentralized Twitter very much or decentralized facebook yeah i I agree i i think that i i kind of am on the same page as you with the idea that if we don't come up with something that really radically changes how people like interact or how society works i don't think that cryptocurrency will ever really become the mainstream thing but if someone can figure out how to use cryptocurrencies to create like an actual change in how society like interacts with each other like like social media has done and, uh, you know, ubiquitous cell phones have done. If someone can figure that out, I think that's where you'd really see the mass adoption of a technology, like, come into play. But until that happens, for me, it's kind of, it's, it's so niche, right? Like, how can I, yeah. how can I expect my parents to, like, go off and 
get an ETH wallet and do all this yeah. when they could just it's not gonna they could just send me an e transfer, right? Like yeah. there's no world in which that makes sense to them. No. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how how it'll play out, but I think there's just there's a lot of innovation going on right now and I think when you've got this many smart people working on it, that good things will get made. Yeah, and it seems like despite no one really knowing what the technology is going to look like in a few years, it seems that everyone who understands it is pretty excited by it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, crypto has that kind of quality where once people get into it, they get really into it, and yeah. then they kind of never come back. And it's, it, once you kind of see what potential it has, it's hard to say that it's not a good idea, mm-hmm. right? Like, even if you only look at it as a way to transfer money between parties without central oversight, even that, like in a lot of places in the world, is not something that you can count on. No. Right. So, yeah, I think, like, and that's the money use case is one, is one aspect of this whole thing. Yeah. You know, no, I, I think even that one, like, outside of the fact that it's not a big market in North America and a lot of the Western world, I could totally see it becoming successful in and of its own right, especially if costs were reduced mm-hmm. in, in markets where the currency is not, like, viable. Right. So yeah, at the very least, I think that's, that's beneficial, but things like Augur are definitely, that's the sort of thing where you can see someone pushing the boundaries of it. And it's, it's going to be really interesting to see if that sort of technology is able to change like the world or if it's just going to become like another blip, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it could like even taking just the prediction markets, if you, I won't be able to explain how this works exactly, but if you look into Dow Democracy, which I think Ralph Merkel came up with, and he has a, a paper about it, there's a it's a very interesting use use case for prediction markets. Essentially, what it does is takes you're trying to use you're trying to take advantage of the expertise of people who really know what they're talking about, and you're trying to use that to make good policy decisions. The problem with our democracy right now, or one of them, is that the people who are making the policy decisions aren't necessarily motivated by the right things, right? Like if, if our goal is to increase whatever well-being or, or financial well-being in the country, we want policies that will do that best. Or maybe the goal is to just increase happiness or something or whatever it is. The policymakers are purportedly doing that, but they're not held accountable to it. You know, like we don't go... We don't have to choose some policies and then a year later see how the metrics have changed, how like the the gross domestic happiness has changed. Yeah. And then we don't like reward those policymakers based on that outcome. And this is essentially what the Dow democracy tries to do is use a prediction market to figure out what policy choices would best achieve some outcome, whether that's like lowering unemployment or increasing overall well-being or whatever it is. And now this is where I don't exactly know how the details of how it works, but I, I believe it. the prediction market resolves and rewards the the policies based on whether they actually achieved the metric. Okay. Something like that. But that's the kind of stuff that gets me really excited about this area. Yeah. That, that sounds like the type of thing where you're almost going to have an entire industry based upon setting goalposts then, right? Yeah, well, that it, it does it does introduce the problem of the metric. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, because if it was easy to measure success, then we probably would be doing it. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though. It's an yeah. interesting idea. Yeah. And this is, uh, we've been here for a while. We've been here for an hour and 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? Record. Yeah, that's the longest one we've done. So um, this has been a, a really interesting chat, though. Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'd love to have you on again some some other time. That'd be um, great. Yeah. I think there's, gonna, a, there's always lots to talk, talk about in crypto world. Yeah, I mean... Every week, it seems like some some new <laughs> new horror has arisen, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Um, thanks for coming in. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I think we're gonna be doing these every Friday. Um, so it should be lots of uh, lots of opportunity in the future. Um, so I, just once again, Jordan runs uh, Vic Blockchain. So you know, if you wanna if you wanna get in touch, um, we'll put the uh, we'll put the link to the invite for the slack uh into the description here and yeah it's it's the, the there's two links that work one is vicblockchain.herokuapp.com i'm pretty sure that's it yeah but yeah yeah and you know if you want to get in touch or ask anything uh, it's a good place to do so mm-hmm. um, we're also going to be having a meetup next week on wednesday i think um if you're if you were to our last meetup um that one was pretty informal, but we've got more of a more of a plan this time. We're gonna do a little bit of a crypto one on one or one oh one and hopefully try and explain like how the basics of like Bitcoin work to some people. And uh, you know, if anyone can survive that, then afterwards we're gonna get into a pretty in depth discussion on Ethereum, we're hoping. Um, so if that's something that might interest you guys, that's at the uh, the membrane labs office here. Um, we're on Wharf Street, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you could find that on meetup next week and, uh, be, uh, be great to have some people come out and have a good conversation. So yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Well, if you've made it this far, thanks for listening. (laughs)